Hi, this is Duncan Regeer, and you know me from Zorro, from Monster Squad, and I'm here on Spoiler Country with Jeff Haas, and I'd like you to join me. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Of the Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan, that is Mr. Horsley, and today on the show was <laughs> Duncan Regeer. And it, this is super yeah. awesome. Sorry to cut you off because I wasn't done yet. <laughs> <laughs> but this is super awesome because this is like the third Monster Squad alum that we've had. Yeah, man, we talked to Andre Gower, we talked to Ryan Lambert, and now Duncan Regeer. Like, we're we're going to get the whole squad eventually. Dude, Monster Squad is <laughs> – I was 13 when that came out, or 12. I think I was 12, actually, when it came out. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, that yeah. that movie was right up my alley. You know, it had the classic Universal Monsters. Uh, it had <laughs> – you know, it, it was, you know, the kids against – the grownups, it just had all of the elements that was perfect for my age. And I mean, I watched it just, I, I still watch that movie every couple of years. I haven't seen it in a while. I need to watch it again because we've had now three people on from the show on. I feel like yeah. I'm now obligated to rewatch that movie and show it to my kids. How am um, I not on any of those shows? I, cause you've been moving, man. I know you've been doing dang, stuff man. and all happened during this time and, and Jeff's actually done all three of them. Oh, lucky bastard. <laughs> right? So maybe the next one we get, you can come on, you can do it for the next one. The next, I'm sure we'll have more Monster Squad because it just doesn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of awesome. We need to do like something special when, we ha- when we've had them all on and do some kind of like cut it up to one like big, big mashup of it. Yeah. 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 Or since they've all been on, ask them to come on as a group. That'd be cool. And then everybody just talks at once. It's like 13 people instead of chaos. I love it. Yeah. Well, well yeah. we can yeah. do like a reunited <laughs> show for Monster Squad. Oh, we should do that. I like that idea. You know what I'm saying? Get everybody yeah. on, have a conversation about the movie, their experiences and what they're doing now, all that kind of fun stuff. I think that'd be great. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Everybody that's... who's in the cast, you're invited. All of you. Yep. Well, well Monster Squad is like a hidden gem of the 80s. It really is. It really is. You know, like you could say Wolfman's got nards. And if they know what you're talking <laughs> about, you know, you know, like, you know what I mean? You, yeah. Like you both, if, if they know, they know. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great line. And, and, uh, and, you know, Duncan plays Count Dracula, which is uh, a cool, I mean, I like Dracula stories to be honest. I, I've yeah. always loved vampire stories and Dracula is one of the coolest. And, uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Dracula is one of the coolest. <laughs> he is one of the coolest, man. <laughs> well, I'm excited to sit back and listen to Duncan. Uh, I have not listened to this interview yet. And, you know, this should be really, really, really good. Should be a lot of fun. And if you're, if you love Monster Squad like I did, then you should be excited for this. Yeah. So let's sit back and listen to Duncan in his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic Mr. Duncan Regeer. How's it going, Mr. Regeer? Pretty good. Good to hear you, Jeff, there. Yes, and, and you as well, sir. I'm a huge fan of yours, back from all the way um, to Monster Squad. It's definitely a great honor of mine to be able to talk with you. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I read that you first broke into show business at the age of 14 when you hosted um, a teenage-oriented talk show in Canada. Is that true? That is true. That was that was sort of my introduction to show business in a way. And it was a teen kind of talk show. We would have you know, regular bands on and that sort of thing. And then local, you know, entertainments and things that were going on. And it was a good training. It was an interesting place to start. I was actually interested in the theater, but, you know, that was a fun place to begin. So what what, what made you think, I want to get into show business? Because I know they always talk about you got bit by the bug. When did that happen to you? And, ha- and how did you know that that bug, I guess, bit you, as it were? The bug that bit me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I guess I got bitten pretty early. I was, I was really interested in Shakespeare. And, and that was due to my mother's efforts to try and get me to read poetry. And, but I, I really caught into to Shakespeare a lot. And um, always, you know, around about the age of 12, I knew I was going to be an actor. I also knew I was going to be an artist. But, you know, I knew that those were in the, the cards for me, for sure. Yeah, um, I'm actually... Um and during my day job, I'm a high school English teacher at a therapeutic high school. Yes. And we read, um, we're reading Shakespeare coming up. Uh, next week, we'll, one class is reading Hamlet. Later this year, we'll be doing Macbeth. Which Shakespeare play is your favorite? Well, those two for sure are wonderful. But there, you know, there are other ones that are a lot of fun as well. But I, I think probably Hamlet is my favorite. I, yeah. I'm very King excited. Lear, maybe a little later, I'll do that. <laughs> I, I've actually never taught King Lear. <laughs> this was... <laughs> It's one of, the, one of the main plays that I've never had the opportunity of teaching. Hamlet, I'll be teaching for the first time next week. Before that, it's always been Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and Julius Caesar. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, Shakespeare, have, have you had the opportunity to perform Shakespeare? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many times. Yeah, in my early years, yes. I, I sound so old, don't I? I, mean, <laughs> I would say, yeah, you know, especially during the years when I was doing a lot of theater in Canada. In those days, we would travel all over the place. It was an easy, easy way of getting around. But we would go to the regional theaters and perform, you know, you would do Hamlet one week and then you'd be at the other end of the country doing, well, Julius Caesar or whatever. That, that must give you a allowed you to study Shakespeare in a way that students and probably even myself have never had the opportunity to do it. You, well, yes, in a way, because it, there you can be open to more interpretations of it. You're not restricted to any sort of curriculum. It's um, about making the stuff come to life and then doing it in a way, perhaps, that it has never been seen before. I'm trying for that anyway. So I assume then you have played Hamlet? Yes, I have. 
So I've when also you played, played his father as well. Oh, that, that must be kind of a nice little change for you to go from uh, him to um, uh, Claudius. What? No, it wasn't Claudius. It was his real father. Oh, the real father. Oh, nice. You got to play the ghost. The ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Now, <laughs> now, I know there's an interpretation of Hamlet. I, I know we're, we're kind of getting into the weeds a little bit for the listeners, but either way, I, I'm obviously a, a Shakespeare guy. That there's some interpretations that the ghost is partly in the in the head of Hamlet. Is, did you play him as being straight, um, honest, goodwilling, uh, goodwill ghost, or did you kind of add um, some elements that are a little more vengeful or anything like that to the character i think i think what i played more was his rage mm. his absolute rage at having been poisoned it, and asleep I, when he was poisoned that that for, for especially for a king that's and a, i guess a former warrior that would be probably one of the worst ways that he didn't even have a chance to actually fight i guess they would say you know with honor yes it's and, very, um, in such a cowardly way and then I think, I, so I played that rage and I was far too young to play the role. I mean, I was in my twenties, but I'm, you know, got all the, you know, the beard and the hair and the, the helmet and everything. And, you know, spooked around the stage. And I think one critic referred to me, he's looking like Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an odd comparison. Yeah. <laughs> it was the headdress, I think. Yeah. <laughs> So, so what roles did you look at for inspiration? Like, is, there, is there a particular version of Hamlet that you looked at and said, that's the one I, I want to emulate? No. No, I, I don't do that, actually. I, I really do try to find my own way with these things. And, yeah, that's what I did. I can only imagine the complications of trying to perform Hamlet. When I'm teaching Shakespeare, I do it in the modern prose version because of uh, the students I have, I can only imagine how difficult it is to get comfortable with that language. Yeah, it is. And it is an antiquated language, of course, but it is just another one of the challenges and it is complex. And the challenges in, in making it believable are our way of approaching it, even when at the time when I was playing a lot of Shakespeare, was to make it more accessible. We were used to the sort of Lawrence Olivier Gilgood kind of delivery. And that became sort of antiquated. It was very histrionic, and it seemed to us anyway. And so we tried to make it more personable. The, the, the recent Hamlet that I saw with David Tennant and uh, with a lot of other wonderful actors is probably the best Hamlet I've ever seen. And uh, Patrick Stewart, I think for sure, did the most magnificent Claudius I've ever seen. Absolutely fabulous. I, I think that my my favorite version, only because I think the way it was performed, it was the most understandable for me, especially as a younger individual, was the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Uh, okay. I, I kind of felt that, I'm not necessarily saying it was the best performed, but I think the way the words were spoken, it just felt like I could understand it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, that tends to be the, the most difficult part for Shakespeare for those who are not used to the language is yes. understanding it as it's being spoken. Yes. Yes. Now I, I did also read something kind of interesting about you that in high school, you actually was a, fi- that you were a figure skater. Is that true? Well, actually a bit earlier than that. I started quite young with that. I was a figure skater up until I didn't no, I was old enough to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I was okay at, at doing it. So, you know, it was one of those things, you know, and, and, and I'm grateful for having done it because it gave me a lot of gifts that understood about balance and how to 
coordinate my body and all of that kind of thing. So I was very grateful for that. And, and I think in later years, it became very handy when I started fencing. Oh, wow. Okay. The stage fencing and what have you, the, the moves and, you know, the, particularly in playing the part of Zorro, trying yeah. to, to find a sort of way of, of fighting that had grace to it and ease and, and, and humor as well. So, you know, all of that sort of graceful sweeping around on the ice kind of flowed right into the character of Zorro when he was in fighting stance. So that, that is amazing how things connect, how something that I, I, that you wouldn't necessarily connect to acting in other words, figure skating does actually pay a lot of dividends to have that training and can be utilized so well. Well, sure. And it, and it's also apart from that, the practical discipline of figure skating or any other sport or, or anything that requires the real focus it all becomes handy perhaps in another way later on, if you learn it early enough as a child. I mean, it, what I really like about you and reading about you is that you definitely seem like a student of the craft. I, I read that you got your acting instruction from the Bastion Theatre School in Victoria. A little bit, yeah. What lessons and techniques did you learn from that that, still, that you still use today in, in your acting? Not very much, actually, to tell you the truth. I, I think I learned more after, you know, because I really wasn't with the school very long and I became a professional actor at the age of 16. I was, you know, performing the classics with a theater company and um, going to school at the same time. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I learned a lot from those professionals about it how to approach a role. I learned how to learn makeup. I learned all kinds of things and all the tricks and all the games that you play at theater school kind of, you know, weren't very interesting anymore. It was, it was just, it was actually doing it that, that I learned the most from. That, that does seem to be true of almost any art that you learn more through the experience than through the actual lessons. I know as a teacher, I learned more from being in the classroom than I ever learned in college, in my education classes. I think there's something about the, the doing of the thing that can never fully be expressed, probably maybe through education. Well, sure, because they're going to give you the standard way of approaching something with the education. It's, it's like anybody. They, you know, I always say this to, to younger artists when they come to me and say, well, how do, I, how do I paint like you? And I say, well, that's the last thing you want to do. <laughs> I said, if, I, if I'm the teacher, all I can do is teach you how to mix paint and if I, you start trying to get you to paint like me, then you're, I'm taking you away from what your genius might be and how you would approach something. And I think the same thing might apply to you with, you know, the way that you teach. You find your own flow with it. You find you, you've got an agenda to get this stuff across to these children, as you say. They, they're, I presume, handicapped children? or They're emotionally and, or, and behavioral, they have emotional and behavioral issues. Okay, okay. So you, you definitely have an agenda, probably a way of, of wanting to really infuse something into these children. And the, the best way to do it is to find your own course, your own flow with that. I think it's, you know. I, I, well, I agree with you 100%. And I do want to, later in the discussion, I definitely want to talk about your artwork and your sculpture because I did go on your website and you have some beautiful paintings. And I definitely want to discuss that in, in a little bit. I, I really feel you're definitely like a Renaissance individual. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, you've had the opportunity to play some very iconic roles. You've played Zorro, um, heroes like Zorro and Errol Flynn, 
Um, you played Dracula and Prince Dirk Blackpool. How are you able to be so versatile? Because some people tend to either be able to be really good heroes, but they don't quite handle the villain well. Some villains are not great at playing the hero. How are you able to move from one to the other so effort, effortlessly? Well, I've always thought that, you know, from the very beginning, I mean, my training is theater. You know, it's more of the, the kind of chameleon aspect that can be right for, for actors. We're familiar now today with a lot of what comes out in the movies. And we have these iconic movie stars who are fantastic at being themselves. I admire them greatly. I mean, you know, going back to the, the beginnings of film, you know, these huge, huge movie stars. And they don't step outside of what that iconic image is. And people like it that way, even if they could step outside of it. But you have other actors like Meryl Streep, for example, who's wonderfully versatile or, or, or Daniel Day-Lewis. There are many. There are many. Those are the chameleons. And so it's just a different kind of approach, a different way of, of doing things. And that's been the attraction for me, was to try and change as much of myself for the role as I could. There are, of course, limitations, physical limitations that you've got to work around, mannerisms, et cetera, that you need to apply in, in a different way if you can. And that's always been my approach. Does that risk ex excite you, the risk of playing against perhaps type, against what an audience expectations of you are? Um, yeah, that's fine with me. Yeah, I, I think that's really impressive. And like I said... You also, deal, I mean, to the, the play a character like Zorro and Dracula and Errol Flynn, these are definitely, uh, especially both Dracula and Zorro, roles that have been made iconic prior. Do you enjoy the challenge of making it your own and owning that role for yourself? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. They, both of those roles, I, they're good examples of trying to make something that's a bit different. I think, you know, especially... You know, with the role of Dracula, you know, it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge to convince Fred Decker, who was the director, you know, during the audition process and after that, that I had, you know, really strong ideas about how to play Dracula. And I wanted to play him differently than he'd been portrayed in the past by, well, so many excellent character actors and still retain the classic iconic qualities. I wanted to infuse the the character with kind of the the right balance of malice and humor. I mean, he had to be extremely dangerous, lethal without mercy, and yet camp in his commentary enough to sort of take the edge off his dire actions, right? Yeah, yeah I was kind of- And that way he could be less, less of a monster in the bestial sense, right? He could be more psychotic, human, sociopathic in, in, in his drive to reach his goals. I kind of thought of him almost like a gentleman sociopath because there's something very yeah. elegant about the way you played him, very classic. And yeah. honestly, but there's that definitely homicidal look in the eyes. It's like what it's like the mannerism and how you um, held yourself looks very gentleman-like, but it's in the eyes that you really made him look horrifying. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, honestly, I'm a huge fan of, and since seeing the movie, and I saw the movie originally, I think I was seven years old. So every time I think of Dracula, it's your performance that is the first one that comes to my mind. Wow. Yeah. Because, I mean, it was perfect. I mean, the role, I mean, you were scary, but he didn't almost seem, on some level, I mean, even though he was monstrous, there was that, like, intellect as well behind it that made him almost more terrifying, that you knew 
this Owen is deep thing. You know, he's a deep thinker. He's going to strategize. He's going to find a way. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so, how how did you how did you get involved with Monster Squad as Dracula? Well, it was a series of just audition auditioning. I was quite a few auditions, as I recall, because it came down to me and another chap. And you know, I just kept pushing for for my idea of how I wanted to, to be. And I, I at the beginning, Fred was more interested in having a kind of a more bestial Dracula. I think, you know, more about the fangs than the intellect. And I said, well, it's all there. And you've given him these these lines, and I would go for more of those lines. And I guess he he kind of confirmed with his partner Shane Black, and and also the executive producer Peter Hyams, who was quite wonderful as well. These guys, the three of them, along with Stan Winston, who did the wonderful makeup special effects, it was really their vision that kind of just galvanized the whole thing. And it, it was challenging at the beginning, and I think Hyams really understood. And where I was going with it. And once Fred got on bandwagon with him, he was fine. He wanted to go that way too. One of the, my favorite moments in the, in that movie, and it has really a lot to do with how you performed it, are the scenes between Dracula and the Frankenstein's monster. Right. And I think it, the way you performed the role added such layering to the character because you could almost sense a Maybe it could have been an illusion or not, but a sense of compassion that Dracula had for Frankenstein or uh, Frankenstein's monster, at least some identification with that character. How much is that connection or that compassion that Dracula showed you? How much was it the script? How much, how much was it in a discussion between you and uh, Mr. Decker? It was definitely a choice. It was my, my choice to do it that way. I thought about the, the character as being almost these the other monsters within the show were were sort of my my charges or my children in a way and his deep compassion for he did he sort of loved frankenstein in a way you know sort of you know we are this is who we are we are these monsters and you know and i i care for you i have i have an agenda for you but believe me i care for you i do and I, th- and I think that really made it, it, it worked so well. Because like I said, the way, just the way you deal with your voice, some of your mannerisms, it definitely made Dracula more complex of a character. And I think that was fantastic. Right. Yeah. Uh, in performing that, did you create for yourself a backstory for those two characters to make it work? Not really. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to remember back, but I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. No, I, I don't know. I, I would say no. Well, like I said, I think that was um, fantastic. And I think another, I mean, there's also the other uh, very famous moment in the movie, and I definitely want to discuss it, with the actress Ashley Bank. I'm sure you know the scene I'm talking about where you kind <laughs> of like, it's like you kind of like hiss at her and she screams. And it became famous in Monster Squad lore that that's a real scream that, that the little girl is doing because you terrified her so much. <laughs> Later, after that scene was over and you found out she really was that terrified, as an actor, do you feel a little bit bad? She scared me when she screamed. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even though I knew she could scream, but I didn't know she could scream like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like when she like, did you think to yourself on one level, you're like, Yeah, I got it. You know, I did that must have been perfect per- perfectly performed, but on the other hand, you're like, poor girl scarred for life. <laughs> yeah. Well no, well, no. And she definitely wasn't scarred for life. Ashley's a very smart lady. 
Yeah. And I think that smart lady was in that little girl a long time ago. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just kidding about the scar because um, I know I, I've seen her tweets on social media. She does seem very intelligent. And put and oh she, yeah, she's, a, she's a really smart lady, and she's a lot of fun. Very funny too. <laughs> and okay, so there's also a, d- a debate that I'm, I'm going to see. I'm going to want you to weigh in on, if you don't mind. Okay. Okay. So Dracula, at the end of the movie, he's staked by Sean, but he's still alive, fighting Van Helsing in the tunnel. So as an as the actor who plays Dracula, does Sean get credit for the kill? Did Van Helsing technically kill him, or do you still believe he's alive after going through the vortex? Oh, I think there's there's a an element of him being alive after when he's in the vortex, in some sort of limbo, permanent limbo situation that he was supposed to be there for for in perpetuity. So I think so. Yes, I mean he would go into some other space, and possibly could come back again. I don't know, you know how these things go. But so yeah, it's an interesting debate. Yeah, I, I was I, I last. Well, earlier in this month, and a little bit, I think, at the end of October, I had the um, privilege of interviewing Mr. Andre Gower and Ryan Lambert. Oh, yeah. and I we, and I mentioned to, to Lambert to, to Mr. Lambert that I found it interesting that Sean, the kid, who's the the leader, actually doesn't kill anybody. And he pointed out, well, he kills Dracula. Like, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Technically, he's not dead when he's in the t- when he's in the vortex. So, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. You know, so I, I was curious what your your thoughts were on that. Yeah, no, I think uh, I've always thought that he went into the vortex and he was still alive, but just, you know, doomed to be in some other uh, universe or whatever. Well, like I said, there's so many good moments in that movie as well. There's the scene with the dynamite and uh, Sean's father. And once again, there that was just a perfectly performed and shot scene, I think. I mean, once again, it, it felt, and maybe because it, you're at the guy at their house, it just felt extra terrifying that you, you kind of like it got personalized like that. Mm-hmm. And I, once again, I, did you have a favorite part of the movie that you think to yourself that's my favorite moment? Yeah, I kind of I sort of like throwing the cops around. That was fun. <laughs> um, you know, it's the stunt work is it was great fun. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, I just found it amusing. That's all. I you know, it's good fun. Yeah, and so, I loved I loved my car. <laughs> that was a wonderful car. That, that yeah. was, did Harvey wish you could like snag it at the end of the shoot? <laughs> yeah, really. I wonder if it's still around. You know? Uh, oh, I can't imagine any guy throwing away a car like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know the name of the producer, but you probably he probably stole it when it was over. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So when when you're on when when you were on set, did you find that the People who played the monsters, the Wolfman. Um, unfortunately, I don't have. I can't remember the names. Oh, I know uh, Mr. Uh, Noonan for the Frankenstein monster. Did you guys right. stay together as a clique, and the kids stayed them uh, separately as a clique, or were you guys able to hang out with? Like, did you guys interact with one another more? Well, no, I, I certainly didn't. You know, and it was sort of a, an active approach to do it that way to create more of a distance from the kids, particularly. They, they, I think they, they were more frightened of us the more we stayed away from them and i think as i recall tom quite often stayed in makeup for a long time after you know until all the kids were gone so that they would never see him without the makeup that's cool which was great but i didn't have a lot of applications as being dracula i mean makeup applications 
you know, that's what I naturally look like, of course, with a white face. And (laughs) 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 well, uh, I was gonna say, apparently, I was like, I hope not, because Dracula was terrifying as a kid. I was terrified by Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that distance helped. Anyway, is what I'm saying. It, you know, I think. But I, I, you know, the monster guys, all the, the people were playing Wolfman and the Mummy, and we didn't actually, we didn't, you know, have much to do with each other other than when we were doing the scenes. That's about it. So I mean, I, I know the, the the people who played the children did stay tight after the they movie did. was over. So the the monster did not the adults. Hello. Oh, I said, did the adults uh, not uh, stay tight? Not really. I mean, I, I get to see them, you know, at, at conventions and what have you, and it's always great to run into them. And I think we've become co- much closer now. Not obvious, I, obviously we have. It's always good to run into them and to catch up and, you know, they've all grown up and have families and, you know, it's it's really great to see them all. Now, Monster Squad has there's also some debate. I actually had the, the great opportunity to watch Wolfman's Got Nards, a documentary by Andre Gower. Yes. And there's a, a, a debate that they discussed in the documentary, whether or not Monster Squad counts as being a cult film. What is your thoughts on it? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. It is a cult film. And when did you, and obviously you um, were on in the documentary yourself. When, when did you know that the movie eventually did catch on and be and grow the size of an artist that it now has well when people started you know the fans started turning up that to to to, i don't know they wanted autographs they wanted that you know whole families would come in you know generations in one family would be the grandfather and the father and the children and the mother and and the little ones big ones they all showed up and that's when i kind of knew that well this is definitely a family cult movie and I think that would have probably, I would say about 10 years ago, maybe a little more than that, I began to realize that. Now, just recently you appeared, or, or has it not happened yet, GalaxyCon, that you were a guest on. Is that, is that coming up or has that already happened? That's happened. So, I mean, that must have been a fun experience. I assume, once again, another opportunity to see just how many fans are of you in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a good con to do. We ha- I have another one coming up on Friday with Full Empire Promotions dot com with Dominic Mancini, and we'll be discussing my career, I guess, and you know a lot of the movies that I've made, and and a question and answer session, and I don't know, I don't um, know the whole schedule, but I <laughs> I know it's coming up on Friday, and it'll probably be for a good portion of the day. What time on Friday? And are there, you buy tickets to it? How does that work? I guess that you go to fullempiremotions.com and you can buy time to, you know, I guess that's what they do. And I, I start at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So it, but by buy time, so this is one of those, it, it's the type of convention where people pay for like, like five minutes with you to- I guess um, that's yes. what it is. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. But I think there's a kind of a, you know, an interview beforehand, and you know, I, I, I'm not sure of the whole agenda, but that, yeah, I mean, I know they're getting a bit, pretty big response for it. So, oh, I can, I can only imagine. Yeah, um, no, it's great. Yeah, I mean, like, like, like I said, I, I, I I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, like I said, I mean, I was talking once when I when I talked to Mr. Lambert, and Mr. Gower, I remember mentioning to them that when I grew up, 
I always just assumed Monster Squad was a classic movie. You know what I'm saying? I always just felt that it was. I always loved it when I was yeah, so when I was seven. It's kind of an, it, yeah, in a way, it's kind of an, an homage to to classic monster movies, and and I guess in that sense, it makes it kind of classical. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. Like it handled the uh, the monsters a way that you figured Universal Studios has tried to do as their as a collected universe and never managed it. But you guys, the movie Monster Squad did it in, in, in a way that was absolutely brilliant, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still a movie that, well, it's stood the test of time. So, you know, it, that speaks for itself. I mean, it ages well. I mean, the special effects, I mean, even though they, were, they weren't CGI, like nowadays, they even, they look in some ways better than a lot of the CGI type things that they come out with now. Yeah, I know. We were all pretty impressed at the time, you know, with what they could do. And I mean, of course, today it's, it's extraordinary what people can do. So when you were invited to appear on Wolfman's Got Nars, the documentary, were you surprised that, would it be, did you know at that point already that Monster Squad had that following? Or was it in experiencing the documentary that you started learning more about? No, I, I knew before that. I, it's the other way around, I guess. The documentary was be, was being made by Andre because he thought, well, hey, this is a good idea. It is a It is a cult classic. So, you know, why don't we make a documentary and my hat goes off to him. He's done a good job. It, it was brilliantly done. And I, and I multiple times I've told our um, listeners to check it out. And I, and I, like I said, I, I, I think not only do I think it was just an interesting look at the movie, but I think it was interesting insight by those who were in the movie and who reflected upon it. Right. So why do you think Master Squad has aged as well as it has? Because of the, the reason being that it is cross-generational, whole families that have been interested in it. So it's given it that kind of timeless quality. It's, there are movies that come along like that. And I'm, I'm thinking of one that I, I loved, but it, it looks dated, is A Christmas Carol with uh, Alistair Sim, which is, I think, the 1951 or 52 version, and black and white. And I love that movie. But it, it stood the test of time. They put it on every year. And I don't know, there are some movies that just work like that. They're quite wonderful. Now, looking back, do you think a movie like The Monster Squad would be made nowadays considering, I mean, it's interesting, the movie itself that, once again, is technically a kid's movie, but it's actually quite dark in many ways. Do you think they they still would make movies like that nowadays? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the, the kids were the heroes in this thing. And I, I don't know if you can repeat it quite in the same way or tastes. Tastes might be different today. You, you would have, instead of a little boy, you would have a little girl, for sure. Mm, yeah. Or maybe it would be the daughter of Ashley Banks or of Andre Gower's character. She would, of course, have, you know, be the one that would be, that's how they would do it today, I think. If they had a recurrence of it or, or a sequel or, or whatever. It, it sounds like there's been rumors of either a sequel or a remake for a couple of decades now. Okay. I, for one, would love to see a remake, though obviously, not a remake, sorry, a, a sequel. It does seem like the way Hollywood usually works, it, it is more likely to do a remake than a sequel. But I think a sequel would be better. What is your thoughts on uh, whether or not you think a sequel would work better or a um, remake? I think both would work. I think both would be fine. I think... I think, you know, it has a fan base already as a cult film. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about a remake. 
I guess, because it always gets compared to what went before. And if people are really in love with the Rocky Horror Show, for example, are you going to do another one? Another <laughs> Rocky Horror Show and, and beat the first one? Right, right. It's tough to do, you know. But then there are generations that are, of people that are not going to be aware of the, the first movie at all. So you could play it for them. I, I think a remake would be fantastic, especially considering that every, all the act, well, most of the actors from the original could definitely return. And I mean, you still probably, I mean, you probably could still play Dracula nowadays. Yeah, I think I probably, no, I know I could, but, you know, it, and I don't look that much different, I don't think. Just older and wiser, I like to, I like to imagine myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm Deluded, sure. right? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, as, as I, and I do want to also discuss for a little bit your, your website. There's a whole host of paintings and sculptures and drawings by you. <coughs> How long have you been an artist and sculptor for? Since well, since I was a child, you know, I began and you know certainly was. It's we were going over the with my gallery in Vancouver. We were going over the different series of works that I've done in the last five decades, and we were kind of surprised to see that it was forty-eight different series of of art works that have been done. In, in other words, things that followed a different theme and had a different look is what I mean by series. Yeah, so it's it's a lot of paintings, a lot of sculpture over many decades. Now, what I saw of the paintings and the sculptures, they look, tre- they look tremendous. Oh, you're welcome. Are you professionally trained or are you self-taught? Kind of both. I mean, it, it, we were talking earlier about, you know, how you find your own flow with things. And that's the, the best learning place in a way is actually doing it. I am, you know, I've often said, that, you know, you go to art school and you can have the talent taught right out of you because you'll be towing the line or doing what is standardly expected of you and you have a curriculum to follow, et cetera, et cetera. And many of the finest artists in the world had no training whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's, for me, that was the way to go. I, my father was a painter as well, not a professional painter, but he loved to paint and uh, he was pretty good. And, uh, you know, I also trained for a little while with Henry Poziat, who was one of the original Dutch surrealists and, you know, we sort of just worked with him in his studio and picked up tips from him, which were very helpful. Well, but, yeah, I would definitely say I think the favorite, my favorite thing on your website for your art is the, the, doppel, the Doppelganger series. Wow. <laughs> OK. I mean, I, it, it just, it, I mean, it looks I mean, you did a great job with the, the coloring. Uh, the images are fantastic. Where, where did that those ideas come from? What what inspired you producing this series? <laughs> well, I think you know it's all sort of tied up with you know an understanding of, of the, I believe everybody has m- multiple personalities within them, but I wanted to do the doppelgangers a little bit different. I mean, the, the traditional way of seeing a doppelganger is is physically being identical to the, the, each each being is identical to the other, so except they have different personality changes. And I, I wanted to go into, you know, other aspects of, of possession, obsession, and that kind of drive, <laughs> psychological drive, manipulation of one character over another. And it's all tied up a, lo- a lot of it with, you know, roles that I've played, for example, like Zorro, which is a dual character, you know, that, you know, has to feed into it somehow as an influence 
there's a madness to Zorro in a way. It's, it's not exactly his doppelganger, but he does have the Diego character and the Zorro character. And he doesn't reveal himself even to the woman that he loves. He doesn't uh, you know, break his disguise with her or his father. The only person he shares it with is a deaf mute boy. And uh, I mean, I'm using the, the language of the time. Yeah. And uh, so there's a kind of odd madness to it. This, this crusader character and also the other side of him. I played him more as an intellectual. I think traditionally that Diego character has been played as a fop. And, and I didn't want to go that way with him. I wanted to do something different. So I played him more as an intellectual scientist mm. and then had the, you know, the, the darker side of him was Zorro, the hero. Mm. Now, um, but I, you know, I digress. You're, t- you're asking me about paintings. Yeah. <laughs> no so, worries. No worries. Just trying to understand that the duality of characters, you know, it just intrigued me a great deal. And a lot of my work is about this, the solitary figure, the individual in context with his environment. So it was an interesting challenge to go in that direction. Now on your website, you, there's, there's a, there's a listing of a couple of the galleries that you had been to. Are you still showing your sculptors, uh, sculptings and paintings at galleries or? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm represented by Petley Jones gallery in Vancouver, British Columbia. And, uh, you know, I have my, my own, which is Duncan Regeer artworks, Duncan Regeer Artworks studios. And we just opened a new website, which you probably haven't seen, which is d- devoted to prints, to fine art editions. And uh, we decided to develop that because a lot of people can't afford the paintings. So I wanted to create prints that made, you know, made the artwork more accessible to everybody. And uh, so we wanted to open it up. We opened it in time for the Christmas season. And uh, it's DuncanRegearArtworks.com. And you can, if you go access that, you get more recent works than are on the other website. If if the if, if when you purchase a print, do they come autographed by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're fine art prints, so they they actually have a signature, and uh, you know they have a proofing the process that goes to them. They're they're very you know high end quality prints, so they're you know it's not really an autograph; it's a signed piece of artwork. I, I'm just curious. I, you're, uh, I definitely always wanted your autograph as well. <laughs> but I definitely, uh, but at least the, the, the artwork was, I mean, it's just a phenomenal piece. Did of I lose the, the, you? No, can you hear me, sir? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes. All right, cool. Well, apparently I'm having some internet connection issues. That's probably, I'm probably, the internet's coming in and out. Okay. But anyways, but either way, so to buy when you're prints, you go on DuncanRegearArtwork.com. Art, artworks. Artworks. Artworks.com. Yeah, DuncanRegearArtworks.com. And you can, that's that's the print website that, you know, makes the prints available. Yeah. And, or books. You can get, you know, pick up, you know, I've written seven books, so you can pick up one of the books there too. They make great Christmas gifts. <laughs> I, I, I actually didn't know that you wrote books as well. I, I, I must admit, I apparently on my research admits that. Well, yeah, you know, it's always involved with my art. You know, so I do a combination usually of poetry with painting, and I've done several books like that. Well, I'm definitely going to look at the books as well, because like I said, I, I was really impressed with what I saw on your, your webpage, and I definitely hope our listeners check it as well. 
Well, thank you. <laughs> um, if, if you do have time, I don't mind. Uh, do you have time to, for me to ask you a couple of questions about Zorro and what maybe one about Deep Space Nine? Of course. Mind? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I, do, I do appreciate that. So you also had, obviously, we all already mentioned that you played Zorro, which is extremely iconic. Um, and and the, your, your show Zorro actually lasted 88 episodes. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Fabulous, because we shot it all in Europe, in just outside of Madrid in Spain. And uh, it was wonderful to be there. I mean, for, for those years, working, you know, endlessly uh, every week, seven days a week. And it was the challenge was fantastic. I mean, I would always be learning, you know, speeches and lines for both characters that I played and rehearsing on the weekends, doing the fight scenes and uh, choreographing, you know, all of that sort of thing. It was pretty exciting, but I could, it also allowed me to do an awful lot of travel in the hiatus times to all over Europe, basically. So I loved it. I had a wonderful time. It was very challenging and, and I loved it. I just, yeah, it was great. What is the key to getting audiences to connect with a character like Zorro, who once again is not someone who's easily identifiable and some immediately when you, cause obviously very heroic memory served very uh, wealthy. How, what is the key to making the viewers connect with them? Well, it's some you have to you have to have compassion. I think, in a way, his compassion for the the people of the pueblo of Los Angeles. You know, he he is their hero, and he sacrifices basically sacrifices his own identity, his himself. I don't know if you've ever read any of Joseph Campbell or not, but, you know, Joseph Campbell does talk about the nature of the hero. And I, you know, certainly studied that the nature of the hero being that he sacrifices himself, his very being for his people. And in that way, the people of the Pueblo were like his audience in a way. And he had the deep, deepest compassion for them in every way. He would defend them to the death. And uh, I think that the audience felt that kind of transference with that. So there was a deep connection. You know, it's the kind of connection that you can get on stage with an audience, except that we weren't dealing with being on stage. We were doing it in film. But I think that's part of it, for sure. I think that's fantastic. When when I teach the epic hero to my freshmen at, at, in school, we do touch on the uh, heroic journey by yeah. uh, uh, Campbell. And I, that's, that's fascinating that, you know, they're, you, to make that connection, it's, it does sound like it, it helps, like you do a lot of research for the roles you're playing and not just the character itself, but you're looking deeper into the mechanics of the character. Well, yeah, and particularly with the iconic roles, because I mean, you know, someone like Zorro, he's, we have our mythological heroes, you know, are, are available all over the place. You can read the wonderful stories about all of them. And we've sort of lost sight of what an actual hero is today. Mm. I mean, we call basketball players heroes. True. And they're not actually heroes. They just play basketball really, really well. <laughs> True. Uh, they can run really fast or something, you know, but that that's not actually a hero. Although many basketball players have gone on to do heroic things mm. outside of being fabulous basketball players. Right, right, right. You know, it, it takes something else to be doing, be doing that sort of thing. I mean, at one time, O.J. Simpson was called a hero. Right. Why? Because he could run fast, basically. But uh, it turned out that he wasn't such a hero in real life. Now, do, do you think, it, it sounds definitely like people confuse 
being good at something with being heroic. And, uh, you know, and, and obviously being good at something is not necessarily heroic if that's, you know, what you're, you're paid to do. I always looked at the, the idea of the hero is you need that element of sacrifice to be heroic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I also think that's why some characters who are overpowered or very powerful characters are not as, or I would not label heroic because there's not the danger of losing, which, or the danger of, or that danger at all, which I think is the heroic. I, th- uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you know, we look at some characters that, you know, you look at the, the way some of them have portrayed themselves as being, you know, they've rush in with the gun and they're blowing people, I don't know, Rambo or one of those types that, yeah, yeah. you know, it's the one who's, who's absolutely terrified, who overcomes his fear, her fear, and achieves a goal that means that they will probably die in the process of doing, that that's the hero. They overcome all obstacles and fears that they, and, and the fear is the worst obstacle they will have. That's a hero, not the one who's running it like a crazy person and shooting everybody <laughs> fearlessly. You know, that's a that's a psycho <laughs> or a sociopath or whatever. I, you know. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, a firefighter is heroic. They go into a burning fire. There's danger there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a baseball player who hits the game-winning home run did his job. You know, <laughs> there's a difference. There. Yeah, and got paid huge amounts of money. You know, exactly. Or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and that's not to put them down. I mean, they do have a role to play, and people love love them. And, you know, of course. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. That's, that's that's kind of funny. Like I always teach my students they can be role models. Let's put it that way. They, they're role models, possibly. Possibly, um, yes. Rather than heroes, yeah. Unless you listen to Charles Barkley, who disagrees with the possibility of a uh, role model athlete. Yeah. I always teach my students when we do epic heroes is the key really is the tragic flaw. The tragic flaw is what makes or doesn't make your hero. Yes. Yeah. And when you were thinking about Zorro, did you have a, a flaw in mind that you thought to yourself that, that he must possess, that he has to work through, through over, over the course of seasons? Yes, but it's a secret. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. You you also mentioned that you learned fencing for Zorro. No, I didn't. Uh, No, I I knew how to fence before I got to Zorro, but I worked with the most wonderful fencing master in Zorro, Peter Diamond, the late Peter Diamond, who was a beautiful guy. And I'd worked with him in the last days of Pompeii in Italy and, and in England prior to that. And uh, of course, when Zorro came along, I'd done all the gladiatorial fights with, with Peter a couple of years before, several years before. And when it came time to do Zorro, I said, well, there's only one guy who you need to hire to do this. And I said, that's Peter Diamond. He did you know all the work for Princess Bride, which had you know some wonderful fight scenes in it, and that they, they're wonderful because we actually had to do that stuff. We there wasn't any CGI, there wasn't any you know speeding up of you know the blades and jumping and leaping and twirling around in impossible ways, and you, you actually had to do you know jump off the balcony and grab a rope and swing across to the other side and tip over a bunch of barrels and you you had to do it yourself right right. right? Right. So, and that was the time. So a lot of, when you look back on those things now, you see the, the blades don't move as, as fast as they do today because of the, you know, we don't have the technology. We didn't have the technology to do that. We had to do it ourselves. 
But yeah, that uh, learning to fence was, I was taught by uh, at Stratford actually when I was doing Shakespeare by Patrick Crane. But I learned a very basic sort of stage fighting later on, <clears throat> you know, working with Peter, there was a gladiatorial sort of approach, you know, using different weapons to, you know, play Leiden, the, the gladiator. And then when we got together for Zorro in Spain, I wanted to develop a, a different approach to it. I wanted to do, to, to make it more cat-like, as I said, you know, the moves, the, the sweeping moves that you could have as a figure skater could, could be applied to the movement of Zorro in a way. And then to do a combination of what we would call saber, which would be the broader strokes, which you would perhaps use if you're going to cross the plaza together, you know, fighting all the way from the tavern to the jailhouse, let's say, right the way across. So you'd use big broad strokes and then you'd get into a smaller confined space. You'd use more fencing moves and you could see the, the blades clicking off of each other in very close quarters. And uh, that was kind of the approach that I wanted to take. And I think it worked fairly well. Considering that once again Zorro is such a beloved character and, ex- and expectations, and it feels like, and every fan of Zorro has their own interpretation of what they want to see as Zorro. Is it is it difficult to play a role where you know the audience has certain expectations? They always are going to have those expectations, but <clears throat> you know, uh, my job is always to sell what what I think the character should be and and get them interested in it. And another role that you played um, to go that has a very strong following is obviously you played, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, Chakar in Deep Space Nine, which had a very deep following. What was it like to play opposite Nana Visitor? And were you familiar with Deep Space Nine prior to playing it? Well, I'll start with the last question first. No, I wasn't. And uh, Nana Visitor is, is a lovely, lovely lady and very easy to fall in love with. She's beautiful and funny and uh, very comfortable to you know, perform with. I really enjoyed her very, very much. And the, I think what you did, it was, was Shakar was another great role, I think, that you played because, once again, it's a character who was very nuanced. It's a character that was fighting against, in many ways, his own people who he was previously a hero to. How, how did you view the character yourself and what decisions did you make in performing Shakar? Well, it, the, the character of Shakar and it, really interested me to begin with because he was he as the hero again another situation where he was really working very hard for his his own people and fighting against virtually his own people in a way that character i understood as being you know the the, the rebel crusader you know with his reasons for doing what he was doing i think what happened with the character and i never really clearly understood this when the character was trans transferred into being the prime minister i didn't understand him anymore okay i did not ca- i could not fathom it was almost as though they'd neutered the character they'd castrated him okay he just became uh, a pawn to paying homage to the other characters around him there you know it just didn't make any more sense to me and i left the series did is it that you don't you didn't believe that the character would go in that direction or the character just didn't make sense for what he was doing? Well, it was a different character and I didn't ha- it was not the character that I was interested in playing. The character that I was interested in playing was the rebel leader, the Shakar. That that was the character that interested me. The, the, this other guy that they came up with called the prime minister was somebody else. I 
and I never really understood who, who or what it was supposed to be. It wasn't in, certainly wasn't in the, any discussions or any uh, the scripts that were given to me. It was as though it was written for somebody else. So, and then to try and you know find a way of making it work, you know that became the chore rather than to actually developing a character. So I I moved on. So the, the, they actually had an, a, a larger role for the character in mind originally. No, I, I mean, I, I was actually surprised when they, they, they came to me and said, you know, there was always talk about, you know, uh, well, we think we're going to maybe expand this character into more episodes, et cetera, et cetera. They, they always have that discussion. So, but it did kind of surprise me when they came and said, you know, well, we, you know, you're going to become the prime minister now and, and that's it. So the, the cool so. thing about Star Trek fans, I don't know if they call themselves Trekkers now or Trekkies or whatever, is that once you enter their their gravity in any way they embrace you kind of forever do you still find that star trek fans have em- still embrace you as a p- part of their like universe yes oh sure yeah definitely for, for that role and for the other character that i played in uh, next generation ronan oh yes 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 <laughs> yeah more and, and, for that one actually <laughs> really <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was always more interested, I think, in Shakar, and, and I, it's maybe because I do like the whole Deep Space Nine concept better, and I think Shakar was a great character within it. But it, it must be amazing to think that you have played three, extra, you know, in three iconic worlds now: Awesome Monster Squad, Zorro, and you played it in, in the Star Trek universe. That, that's a hell of a career right there. <laughs> There's a few others in there too. I think, you know, Charles and V perhaps and yeah. Blackpool and Wizards and Warriors, you know, and of course, yeah. I is, guess. Is, is there a, a role that you, that you enjoyed the most and wish you could go back to? Not really. You know, I'd be more interested in moving on if I was going to do anything at all. You know, it would have to be interesting in some way, attractive in some way. Yeah, but I'm I'm open for it. Sure, of course I am. Well, like I said, I, I really enjoyed, and I and when I was able to do some research on going through your career, like I said, you've just had an extraordinary long, fantastic career. And what advice do you have for other future actors to how to also have a career that was as extensive as yours? I would say, you know, go for the role. Go for developing the role always. You know, there's enough of, you know, there's so many people out there that are just interested in fame and money today. And those are all good things, I guess, you know, and if you're an actor, you have certainly have to perpetuate your fame so that you, you know, people become interested, I guess. But I think a lot of people just, they have the vision of being famous and, you know, hence we have all the social media that we have and, you know, these profiles that people put up about themselves and we're all heroes and we're all, we're all there. But I think go for the substance, you know, that's what we need. Bottom line, you know, in any character that you approach. And that's, that's a definitely the way I approached the whole thing in acting was, it was always the role that I loved to develop. That was what was interesting. Interpreting the script, whether it be Shakespeare or Deep Space Nine or whatever, that that's what was interesting. And then the interaction with other characters to see what would happen that that's where you, you the focus can be if you you really want to be an actor well thank you so much mr regier for talking with me you're a fantastic guest and i greatly appreciate it oh thanks <laughs>
Uh, I, I definitely want to remind our listeners to check out your, your website and your artwork is phenomenal. Well, and thank you. Very welcome. Artworks.com. I'll give myself a plug. How's that? <laughs> uh, please do. And also, I'd like people to maybe, if they can, tune in on Friday, this Friday, fullempirepromotions.com, because, you know, we can book in and say hello or whatever, and that would be nice. Check it out. Thank you so much, sir. You're, like I said, you're a fantastic guest. Please come back anytime. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great night. Good night. I heard you starting, so I had to do it too. Sorry. I see. <laughs> Look fly as hell. <laughs> so, uh, not, not yet. We're not there yet. Um, so, so what do you think of Duncan? Oh, he's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. You know, and he played that role so well. And it was a lot of, you know, that, I don't know, man. I I could sit here and just wax all day about how much I really enjoyed that movie. That, that movie has a special place because, one, I didn't get a seat in the theater. Right? Yeah. Because my mom just saw the name and then saw the trailer and was like, no, you're not seeing that in the theater. You're not seeing that. <laughs> Wasn't you're not right. seeing that in the theater. It was you're just not seeing that. And I was like, Never oh. been for you. <laughs> and I remember my sister took me over to her sister-in-law's house because she was married at the time. Mm. And <laughs> they had it on VHS. And they were playing. Nice. And I was like, sweet. <laughs> I get to watch it now. Yeah, but I totally sat down and watched that whole thing. And I missed like the first 20 minutes. And they were cool enough. They rewound it and we watched it. We started it over and got to watch the whole thing. It was, yeah. I, and then nice. I got the movie. My, my dad bought me the movie when we went to the Bag and Save grocery store. In Bremerton, Washington, that had a little video store, and they had it used for like $8 or something like that, and he bought it for me and said, just don't tell your mom. Nice. Just hide this like a porn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. So that's, it was pretty cool, man. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I need to go back and listen to the other interviews now um, because yeah. I'm, a, I'm a bad host and didn't listen to the other two interviews yet. Yeah. I mean, you've been busy, but yeah, you should. You should. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think? I thought it was great, man. It makes me want to, like I said, it makes me want to watch the movie again. And I haven't, cause I haven't watched it in a while. And uh, yeah. I'm going to think I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I have to buy it. I don't think I own it on, I don't, I don't have the DVD or anything like that. So I'll have to buy it on like Amazon or whatever. And um, I have the, I'm going to sit down with the kids and watch it. Cause we have a tradition in our family where every year uh, during Christmas time, we watch horror films, right? Or that's a, a lot of people do that. Monster films. Yeah. That's, there's a lot of people that do that. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, and we do that every year. So we're we're starting to gear up to starting to watch some horror films, and I'm gonna I'm gonna toss that one in the mix because that's one you can watch with Jack. Yeah, yeah, it's a monster you know? film, so you know. It's, yeah, it's it got some scary elements uh, for his age group, but not too bad where he's gonna give him nightmares. Right, exactly, exactly. So I'll have to add that to the list this year because uh, we're gonna watch a bunch of them. We don't for some reason we don't really watch scary films during Halloween time. We watch them in Christmas time, but so I don't know. Yeah, I just. <sighs> Yeah, it's kind of weird, I guess. I mean, but I know a lot of people that do that now. Like Christmas time yeah. is is I think it's the antithesis of the Hallmark Christmas show. Right, right. You know what I mean? They have all those movies that come out during Christmas, the Hallmark Channel does, and they and they're all yeah. like some girl or some guy goes to some small town where Christmas is a big deal and you know, it's it the only same takes movie one, every all over and over again yeah, different actors. Yeah. 
I kind of moved to that town, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Like a Did full, it, yeah, it's a full on Hallmark Christmas town. It's kind of funny. Nice. Yeah. I love it. I, 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 because as cheesy as those movies are, you know, I love them too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not that I love them, but I'll, I, I, I don't turn them off. <laughs> yeah. Say, it was like, I, I end up sitting down and watching I, the whole nice thing. And I'm like, a, Oh, good. I think what I like about it is the, uh, the hopefulness of it. Yeah. Same. You know what I mean? Same. I, I, I say that a lot lately. You know what I mean? I'm trying to not to do that, but it seems to happen quite a bit. <laughs> but there's so much negativity in the world, you know? Oh, I know. Especially and this there's year. there's just so much, like, loss that it's kind of nice to sit back and listen, watch or listen to something that is going to end on a good note, you know? And horror movies don't always do that. <laughs> they don't. Uh, oftentimes they don't. But, but Hallmark Christmas yeah, I mean, shows I, do. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, maybe maybe they should make one that doesn't end on a good note. They can call it a Hallmark a Hallmark horror story. Right. Exactly. Great. I'm excited to see how the downtown of this of this city is of this small town, I should say, is uh, in about two weeks. Because I I drove down Main Street, well First Street, and they were uh, decorating, getting things ready. Uh, the only thing is, it's it's going to be sad because of this whole COVID thing. It is COVID's messing everything up. It's like I don't know. What, like we're trying to. I want to. I want to go see my mom, but I can't. You know, I can't go see her. For, oh, you can't right now see your mom. Are going up. You you can't. I mean, she is. Yeah. You just can't take that risk. Nah, you know? For those who don't know, my mom. My mom had cancer, and she's in her last round of chemo right now, and had a lung removed a couple months ago. So like. I don't have an option I, unless yeah. I, unless like the whole house, like hardcore quarantine for like two, three weeks beforehand, nobody goes anywhere. Nobody comes over. There's yep. no chance I'm going to be able to say mom for Christmas. That's fine. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, we're not even really getting together as a family for Thanksgiving or anything. No, we're not. Like we just happen to have um, your mom, grandma here. Cause she came up to spend some time with us and we all quarantined beforehand and she'll be here over Thanksgiving, but no one's meeting up. No one's doing anything. She just happens to be here this week. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's so, just, it's lame. It's lame in a lot of ways. We can, we can you do know. a Zoom Thanksgiving. I'll put, a, I'll put a TV up and we all Zoom each other. <laughs> <laughs> we went and got our, all the, you know, the Thanksgiving stuff. And yeah. we got, it was just, it's just going to be the three of us. So we're just like, well, we don't need to buy a 20 pound turkey because I went to the store and all they had was 19 and 20 pound turkeys left. I was like, that is just oh, too geez. big, you know? Yeah. But they had a little butterball breasts only package. Mm-hmm. And then they had a package of just turkey legs. So oh, we nice. just got the breast and the turkey legs. And we're just going to cook that. And you're good. <laughs> yeah. Why cook you know, the whole thing that we don't need to do? You know, it's great. And huh. I, I don't think you realize this. I didn't tell you when we started recording this intro outro. Yeah. This episode's actually coming out on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So, ever listening, ever listening today, it's actually Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yeah. From us to you. Right? I, um, yeah. I'm excited. I, <laughs> Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Ever tell you this? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's my absolute favorite holiday. Like everybody loves Halloween or they're big Christmas fans. No, man, it's all about Thanksgiving. And the reason that I love Thanksgiving is because there's no expectations of presents, of going to some crazy Halloween party, of candy or costumes or anything. It's literally about getting together with your family eating food, which is a big deal because it's, yeah. it's the community and it's the breaking of bread together. And that's all it's about. 
you know? And I love that. And I, when I was growing up, my mom would always say, what do you want for your, your birthday dinner? Cause she would always make whatever you wanted for your birthday dinner. And every right. year for like <laughs> 10 years in a row, it was, I want to think, I want a turkey with all the fixings. And the nice thing about a Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> it's relatively inexpensive. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're getting mashed potatoes. So you're buying a thing of, of, of potatoes, which is like, you know, at the time was like $3 for a huge old bag of potatoes. I don't know what it, I can't think that's like it's $6 now, but it's not, you know, it's still <laughs> inexpensive. You're getting some carrots. Maybe one of the big things on our table was always sauteed mushrooms. So we're getting some mushrooms. The most expensive thing on the table is the turkey. Right. You know, and, but then you have food for days, you know? Yep. So it's literally, it's always been, it probably always will be my favorite holiday. And I don't know. I don't, I don't see how you beat it except for presents, I guess, but it's just not the I mean, same. Well, even Christmas, I don't care about the, I don't care about the presents. Either you know, way. I don't, I don't care about getting stuff on Christmas. You know, it's nice, but I'm ultimately more about the the family get together and same with Thanksgiving, you know, it's like the get together of, 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 you know, hanging out with the family and talking and getting to see people. And if it wasn't for Thanksgiving dinners, you and I would never became friends, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we would have, it would have been some kind of holiday. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I was trying to. Trying to make it all relative here, you know? right? Right, but T Day, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is. Like Christmas to me, I there's a whole history around Christmas, you know, and people are like, well, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, though, it's such a deeply religious holiday that and Easter, and right, you know that, and it's been so marginalized, and 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 I'll be honest, man, when I watch a thing and they talk about, this is what Christmas is about. And it's like, no, it's in there. You know, they're talking about family getting together. It's like, that's not what Christmas is about. You know, you just don't want to, you, you, you're, you're trying to absolve it from being a Christian holiday. And right. I don't personally, I don't really care about how people celebrate whatever they celebrate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I don't take Ramadan and try to change it into something that it's not. Well, I mean, yeah. Christmas itself wasn't it wasn't even originally a Christmas holiday. It was a pagan holiday first or whatever. Well, it was modified for Christianity. It was modified, and then it was by modified the Romans. again for consumerism. I mean, no, not it's modified, been modified for consumerism. No, 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 everywhere. It wasn't. Mo- it was. It's been modified for com- consumerism now, but it was originally brought in by the Romans that took their holiday for Christianity and then and steeped it into what the British people were doing. Now I say British, but what when you take over a society, you take over a culture, one of the things to do to assimilate them is to take on some of their parts and mix it in with your parts to make it something familiar to them. And that's what the Romans did. They came in, the whole thing with bringing the trees in, that was them trying to take over a holiday from the British. So really, I shouldn't yeah. even say Christianity. I should say what it is originally. It's been so construed. You know what I mean? And yeah, misrepresented. It's been, it's been, it's, yeah. It's, it's not, just it's, weird. It's not, what people, it's not what anybody says it is. Yeah. Originally, yeah. And so, know? but Thanksgiving to me is still, I don't, fuck man, I guess now you can even take Thanksgiving and, and, and blow it out of the water because we did some Black horrid Friday. things to the Native Americans. We did. And, and it's been modified for Black Friday. Again, it's been modified yep. for, you know, consumerism again. So but, I mean, everything even, I said before this, just ignore it. Just ignore it. Enjoy the holiday you want to enjoy. <laughs> No, yeah, obviously enjoy the holiday, however you want to enjoy holidays and enjoy your holidays with your loved ones, you know. Well, actually, I'm going to modify that. 
Don't enjoy them however you want to enjoy them. This year, enjoy them at home by yourself without going to see your family because we don't want to kill everybody, right? Uh, unless you've been so quarantining go all together for house. the last... Stay home. Well, unless you're quarantining with everybody. What's that? Enjoy the holidays with, with the loved ones you're quarantining with. There you go. Exactly. Don't don't go do big family dinners this year, right? Don't listen to certain people in the political spectrum that are saying, oh, it's fine to go see your family. That's how we're going to have a huge spike in January, and you're going to kill a bunch of people. Oh, you know Just what they're talking about is the college whatever. kids coming home. Yeah, kids, well, yeah well, there's, well, they're suspecting a huge spike in January based, based upon kids coming home for the holidays and people ignoring this, the, the, the guidelines and just having you know big get-togethers anyways, yeah. which they've already shown that these big get-togethers, like there was a wedding in yep. Washington State in Grant County where 300 people I went. I tweeted about this. Within a week, 40 people had it. It's yep. like, come on. Yep. Who does that? Who has their people wedding who, during the middle of a pandemic when they know it has 300 people show up? Why not? To me, it's like, I don't understand. Why don't you just go get, if you need to be married, fine. Go get the certificate, have it signed by a judge, be married. Yeah. And then after the pandemic, have the ceremony. And throw a big party. That, that's what my friend did. My, my friend did a small wedding with her family, got married real quick in their, in their, in their parents' backyard, and then they're going to do a bigger like celebration. You don't even you have know, to have that, though. Up. But that's the thing. You don't even have to do that. Just get your certificate yeah. and then plan the actual ceremony later on. And have it been right. because now it feels weird. Now you're having two ceremonies. You know what I mean? When you could have mm-hmm. one and say, "Well, we didn't have a ceremony because of the pandemic." Now we're gonna have one big one, or the, the, the you know the one, and go. Right. Why do you have to be so steeped in tradition that you'd rather put everybody's lives at risk or health at risk? Right. And tradition for who? Most people. Most people who get married these days and do follow ceremonies don't act aren't actually like devoted to whatever religion they're doing their ceremony for. So it's like to do what you want, do what you need to do and be safe. Yeah, exactly. So just wear a mask. <laughs> wear a mask. Respect I told somebody yesterday, dude, I had to go to the grocery <laughs> store. I'm sitting there, I look over and this guy, he's in his fifties or so has his mask. His nose is fully exposed. I'm like, dude, your mask has fallen. He's like, Oh, I can't right. breathe that way. And I'm like, then why are you even wearing a mask? Because you're literally right. doing nothing. I mean, you're completely you're, you're, your mask is doing nothing at this point. Yeah, wear the mask. You can't wear the mask if you can't wear a mask. Then he's like, "Well, don't you don't come to the store." He's like, "Well, you don't have to be a jerk just... about it." And I'm like, "Well, apparently, I do." <laughs> right. God, I saw this TikTok of a guy who he went into a he went into a, a gas station. And nobody was wearing a mask, and he was wearing his mask. He's like, "Hey, are you guys going to put your mask on?" They're like, "Oh no, that's fake news." And so he just started like he's like, "I just started coughing and sneezing a ton." And all of a sudden, these masks came out like crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, man. Yeah. But I think we've got off on quite a tangent. <laughs> I hope you guys. This is what happens? En- when we don't talk for a while. I know. I hope you guys really enjoyed listening to uh, Jeff and Duncan. I mean, it was Jeff and Duncan. That sounds like a donut shop, right? Jeff and Duncan. <laughs> Going to Jeff and Duncan's, man. I'm going to get that powdered jelly filled donut. Yeah. I'm excited. No. I'll put it from Jeff and Duncan. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, honestly, I hope you guys really did enjoy that as much as we did. If you did enjoy that and you want to hear more interviews with the likes of Duncan or maybe Andrew... Help me out here. Gower. Andrew, Andrew Gower. Gower. And... Or Ryan Lambert. Yep. Then go to spoilerverse.com. Uh, we have those there for you to peruse, for you to listen, for you to enjoy. And not only that, yeah. there's a ton of other people out there like, well, soon, maybe not today, 
but soon Paul W.S. Anderson's going to be up. And if you don't know who That'll he is, where are you? Because he's the director right. of Event Horizon, of Mortal Kombat, of all the Resident Evil Well, not all the Resident Evil movies, but most of the Resident Evil movies. And he has yeah. a brand new movie coming out Christmas Day. Actually, December 1st if you're in uh, Britain because you guys are cooler. But Christmas Day in America, Monster Hunter. So yeah, what are you doing? You should go yeah, you should over. Def- you should. Yep. Go over there, check it out, enjoy that stuff. And there's a ton of other podcasts to listen to. Yeah, we got uh, Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures. So much fun stuff to listen to. And we got articles and reviews and previews and tons of stuff being written all the time. We have daily content coming out, so definitely go over there and check that out because you're not going to want to miss it. And go leave some comments. People love comments. We got a store link. You can buy some stuff. Get a t-shirt, a hoodie, Look a face mask, hell. mask. Look fly as hell. Thank you, Kenrick. And uh, help support the site and everything that we do there. You can also go to scpod.us slash discord. Join our public discord server. Come chat with us. Join into our fun contests and questions of the day and stuff like that. We have a lot of fun there. So go ahead and definitely go to scpod.us slash discord and join us there. Get there and troll us. I mean, go for it. Yeah. See how hard you can actually troll us and see what happens. Troll Robert and troll Jay. You'll have fun with us too. And Casey. And Casey Troll Casey because, man, just go total right wing and challenge Casey. You'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. Oh, man. Tell him yeah. Joe Rogan is your god. <laughs> oh, man. And with right. that, that's that a show. Is, is, that is a show. We love you guys. Thank you for turning in. And don't forget, when an ocean's a podcast, we are the Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. <laughs> and be more. I don't know why that cracks me up, man. Now I'm trying to make more. <laughs> but read more. Seriously.